Welcome to Award Wieners. I'm John, joined by the great producer David. This is our night at the Oscars, where we watch Oscar-winning movies while enjoying Oscar Meyer Wieners. It's a celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. In this episode, we discuss the show business drama, The Great Sigfield, winner of the 1936 Oscar for Best Production. Dave, what's going on? You know, the normal. It sounds like you... Compared me to Hugh Jackman with that reference. The greatest showman. If you are, I'll take that compliment, John. He's a he's a good looking man. <laughs> <laughs> or I compared you to two guys doing Hitler in the spring as the great producer. <laughs> they came out rich, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why we said that is because the movie we're watching today is about a great producer from the, I guess, 1920s and 30s. If you were from that time, you would know who we're talking about. You're not. I don't think his name is really carried on, but we'll get into that. But before we do, Dave, we have been away for a while. Lots of things have been out of our control. Tell us what you've been up to for the past. When did we do the last one? Six months ago? Maybe longer. I looked at our notes. Uh, we started the script in like March of this year, and it's now seven months later. Lots has gone on in the, those months since. We took a hiatus because my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I spent the majority of the year taking care of him in the hospital and spending time at the hospice. And quite frankly, I did not have the mental capacity to, I didn't want to not pay attention is what it came down to. And so I decided to just take a hiatus. Uh, But now we're back with The Great Zigfield, a movie I I feel... uh, not great about. I'll, I'll be honest, John. <laughs> I think that's part of the reason this really drug on is because you and I were not super excited about this movie. So one of the things we, we do come across these these type of movies every now and then we're just like, whoa, this is a bad pick. But I think that this gives us an opportunity to do is really dive into the history of Hollywood instead of really focusing on the film a little bit. For me, when I was doing the research, uh, that was what was interesting to me because once I, f- I watched this movie two two or three times and once I watched the first one, I was like, well, I got everything I need out of this. I don't need to watch this movie more. And, and I actually just spent time reading about all, all of old, old Hollywood and all the actors. I agree with you. the importance of this film is more of a moment in time in Hollywood. I would imagine most people don't care about that. And if you don't care about that, well, maybe I'll save my review for the end. Yeah. Uh, so with that out of the way, John, what have you been up to? Uh, I've also had some life changes. The company I was working for did some restructuring and let me go. So I've been looking for a job for the past few months and I've received several offers and I'm still just trying to figure out which one is best for me. That's also been a lot of fun. Not really. <laughs> have you been considering professional podcast host? <laughs> I'll add that to my resume <laughs> to say like, I've done this. Okay. You know, it's it's been good. Some downtime after a stressful job has been awesome. Everyone's been super cool when I reach out to them for networking or job opportunities. All right. That's good. I'm glad you got yourself a job coming up uh, and we can get back to this on a more frequent basis. <laughs> I think we've said that for the past several episodes. <laughs> well, it's 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 been a rough. Honestly, it's been a rough two years. Yeah. This year is probably one of the worst of my life, if not the worst of my life, to be to be honest with all of our listeners. My life comes before this movie review podcast, and I had to take care of that. I know what you've been going through, and that sucks. Do you want to cap it off with your more exciting personal news? Yes, I am getting married. <laughs> I got engaged in May, and I'm getting married in December. Uh, so we have two months to get this thing planned. <laughs> the winds have changed for Dave. I'm excited for that, too. So so do we want to dive into this movie, or is there anything else you want to kind of get into first? It's been a long time, but I want to get into just one movie that we've seen over over this year that we would recommend. I'm happy to go first on that. And I thought a little bit about it. And the movie that I would recommend is Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. This is not my favorite movie of the year, but is the one I would recommend the most. It is funnier than it has any right to be with an amazing cameo. Chris Pine is being very Chris Pine. Like, you're not feeling great or you just need a laugh. You should totally watch this movie. Yeah, I actually saw that movie. And I feel like there's not a lot of movies I saw that are first run uh, in the past several months. 
Yeah, I like that one too. I have Barbie and Oppenheimer on my list of things to see still, and I will eventually get to those. Did you see either one of those? I saw Barbie in a theater. Uh, it was a very good time. Here's here's a little side story. So my fiance, <laughs> Sarah, wanted to go see it. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll go see that. Uh, and she got us a beer tasting slash movie tickets. We thought there would be like two beers, whatever. It was a two-hour beer tasting before the movie started. Uh, and I wasn't drinking, so so she drank the majority of my beer and then when the movie started, everyone was drunk and it was super rowdy. Uh, it added to the experience. It was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but I was like the sober person in a uh, very routed showing uh, of Barbie. <laughs> and I haven't seen um, Oppenheimer. Uh, I'll get to it. You know, that's going to be nominated for a best picture. So obviously we'll watch it. it. With everything going on in my life, I was like, I don't want to watch a downer movie. So I, I kind of have been avoiding all the dramas and just watching really fluffy stuff and then movies that um, I know really well, which is basically slashers. Like I, I've gone through the entire Friday the Thirteenth uh, franchise again for the millionth time, mostly because I just didn't want to think too hard for a long time. Anything else that you've watched, maybe outside of first run movies? Outside of first run movies, that's a that's a pretty good question. Um, I did re- did a podcast with movie films and flicks where I watched Piranha, uh, and that is a sort of parody of jaws it's first time watch uh it is of the like jaws ripoffs excellent it's it's a really funny odd movie i would recommend like if that's your type of thing definitely go check it out the the thing is i'm probably really late to the to suggest this because it's always number one on like jaws ripoff movies so go watch it who's in that movie no one you would know (laughs) directed by joe dante (laughs) Okay, just check in to see. Do recommend that? I though. do recommend that. Uh, I've watched some other ones I would not recommend, but those podcasts haven't come out yet, so uh, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> but you can catch those on movie, films, and flicks. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Like once a month, I'm on the podcast doing just a very light, uh, fun episode. We we just It's this place where you just talk about how much you love a movie, really. You don't really get in too deep about why you hate something, and we never pick movies that... We really dislike. And if we do, we just don't publish the podcast. <laughs> You're just like, we're going to record this and we'll hate on it for 30 minutes, but then we're going to just recycle it. Well, it, it's one of those movies like, here's an example, The Mummy 2. The Mummy 2 is like, it's not a good movie. There's nothing to it. Like when I record a podcast for that, for movie films and flicks with it, and we were trying to talk about it and we're like, we have nothing to talk about because there's literally nothing here. It's one action scene for the entire movie, no development. And then it's over. And at the end of the podcast, you're like, do we even want to publish this? <laughs> oh, I remember liking The Mummy, too. I guess uh, I haven't watched it. A long it's time not ago. it's not a bad movie. It's just literally there's nothing to talk about. It's just an action scene. What do we do with this movie then? We're going to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, we're completionists. We're, we're masochists. Uh, we're going to yeah, whip ourselves right. as we go through it. I'm, I'm being overly dramatic. There are good qualities to this film, which we'll get to. But you'll understand why I'm a little bit like, eh, about on this down the critique. Well, let's start out with it being three hours long as part of that critique. Yeah, that is no joke. Uh, I read some of the reviews from the time period. One of the things they pointed at, they're like, this movie's 10 minutes short of three hours. And at the time, it was the longest American movie. And they're like, this thing could have been cut by an hour. (laughs) Easy. For sure. And I was like, hell yeah, it could. (laughs) You want to move into the movie now that we've started eviscerating it already? Oh, yeah. If you want to, go ahead. All right, let's do it. So... The Great Ziegfeld. Uh, Dave, how would you describe this movie in a sentence or two? It's about a ladies' man and renowned Broadway producer, I guess. It's a biography of Florence Ziegfeld, who was well-known at the time. Uh, he, I think he passed away maybe two or three years before this movie came out. In popular culture, everyone would have known who he is because his plays, I guess they're sort of like variety shows. Everyone would have heard about them. So at the time, very famous. Yeah. he. I mean, he did plays, and you would know of Showboat. But yeah, mostly variety shows. So you're just getting into the movie. Uh, it was released uh, March 22nd, 1936. It is a long 177 minutes. At the time, the budget was $2.18 million. And in the box office, it made $4.67 million. The director was, we don't even know who this is. So you want me to mention it? Yeah, give the director his due. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're going on strike for, huh? Yeah. 
So the director was uh, Robert Z. Leonard. Do you know anything else that he did? Nope. Do you? All right. Nope, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly we spent time learning who that was. The other Best Picture nominations that year were Anthony Adverse, Dodsworth. And Dodsworth is probably the most notable of these films. It's been listed on the AFI uh, Top 100 movies for quite some time and it's been recognized by the National Film Registry. Other movies, Libel Lady, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. That's a Frank Capra movie, also pretty well known. Romeo and Juliet, San Francisco, The Story of Louis Pasteur, A Tale of Two Cities, Three Smart Girls. Uh, Dave, have you seen any of those movies? I have not, but Dodsworth and Mr. Deeds Go to Town are both on my two watch lists, and I've been trying to get to them for what feels like forever. I actually like Dodsworth a lot. If we're talking about movies you should see from this year, that is the one. It's a really interesting movie about this couple who one has basically been like a rich housewife and she's much younger than her husband who is reaching retirement age and he's been very successful. They retire and they start to travel around the world and they just realize that they're very different people kind of have to work through some of that to figure out what's right for them. So I I feel it was like just a, a really interesting discussion on couples growing apart and not even recognizing it. That does sound like a a fun movie, (laughs) maybe an interesting (laughs) movie, Uh, (laughs) uh, but yeah, it is on my list. I really want to, really want to check that out. We're we're talking about the, this year, you know, a couple movies that stood out to me that I wanted to mention that weren't nominated for a best picture. One, uh, Modern Times, that's Charlie Chaplin's movie. It was really snubbed. Uh, uh, I love this movie. I highly recommend everyone go check it out. First time I saw it, I was a little drunk at a party. And I just sat down and watched the entire thing uh, and ignored the rest of everyone else because I, I got into it so quickly. Highly, highly recommend. Really cool visuals. And then another one, uh, John, I believe we've watched this together. Uh, uh-huh. Reefer Madness, the original. Uh-huh. I've definitely smoked and watched this. <laughs> it's it's a ridiculous movie. It feels like a grade school play. Some little kids are like, oh, we heard marijuana is bad. Let's write stories about it. <laughs> and then you're like, hilarious in certain ways. Yeah. And then so is the remake. There's a musical remake too, yeah, right? Is exactly. Yeah, 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 I am. So the top grossing movie this year, it was described as a short. I'm actually not quite sure how to describe it, but it's how to become a detective. Um, and it's part of a series. And generally it's a comedian who runs through how to do X, Y, Z. And this one's how to become a detective. He describes how to do the work, but then gets caught up in some, some stuff. It outgrossed this movie, actually, Ziegfeld was the second highest uh, by a significant margin. Comedy. Yeah, I would watch it. I would 100% watch it if I could find it. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I will plug a service that we're not sponsored by. Through my library, there's a service called Canopy. Uh, it starts with a K. They have a ton of movies you can stream for free if you have a library card. I don't know if it's in every every geographic region, but in my area it is. They have a ton of these movies online that you can stream for free. So I, I could stream Dodsworth and probably some other older films there. They even have new things too. It's pretty cool. I would definitely say to check it out. It's worth the cost of nothing. <laughs> probably worth, worth more than nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's great. It saves you all the money. You wouldn't need to rent the movie or have to track something down because all sorts of things are just available at your fingertips. Just type it in and it streams almost immediately. I'm definitely saying that up so I don't have to hunt on YouTube to find <laughs> ripped copies of the, those old movies. <laughs> it's it's legal, it's better, and uh, very easy to use. So getting back to the movie, The Great Sigfield was nominated for seven different Oscars, and it won three. It won for Outstanding Production, which is now Best Picture, uh, Best Actress, and that was by Louise Rainier, and she played Anna Held. We'll get into that in a minute. And then Best Dance Direction for Seymour Felix. So moving into our red carpet segment. So if you're a first time listener, you should know that we eat movie themed hot dogs while watching these movies. Dave, I gave you a slightly different assignment. So in this movie, the great Zigfield creates these, what would you say? Gigantic stage productions called Follies. When you first see it, it looks like a diorama, but that's not totally what he does, right? It's a variety show. (laughs) It's a variety show with like very elaborate set production costumes and just different songs and things like that so so dave if you were to create a folly for hot dogs what are you doing okay so i took this very literal i came up with this idea after watching the movie but before research before realizing that it's a bunch of you know comedy skits and singing and all these other things so i i really thought the follies were only dioramas and what we mean by that is like the first 
folly that's shown in this movie is a giant staircase that spins around and there's just people standing there and some of them singing and they go through like three or four or five different songs. And so I was like, well, I guess I got to make something on stairs. <laughs> this did not work out well. I'm going to tell everyone that now. Uh, <laughs> I made literally stairs out of cornbread and like dug little holes and put half hot dogs in it. It looks hideous. I don't want to show anyone a picture. It, it was crumbling apart. <laughs> I failed. I do not have uh, Ziegfeld's uh, magic eye for hot dog towers. <laughs> you need the right set producer, Dave. Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, the hardest part was like, okay, they're they're in there, but now I don't have anything to dress them with. Like, how? What? What do I? How do I make them good? Like, how do I make these like hot dogs look like attractive ladies? <laughs> and I, I came up with an idea, but you know what I did, John? I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not cutting out uh, cantaloupe melon scoops and like putting them on the hot dogs. I was like, I'm that's too far even for me. <laughs> it sounds like you kind of made a corn dog, right? So like a uh, hot dog and cornbread, right? It's kind of like a corn dog. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a deconstructed corn dog. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What did you make? So I conceptually, if I were to create a hot dog folly, I would do something ridiculous. Like I would have kind of a giant punch bowl with hot dogs in it. Imagine uh, like synchronized swimming, I'd have hot dogs rotating in concentric circles, maybe one circle of hot dogs rotating in one direction in a giant punch bowl with maybe a little fountain in the center. Maybe it's shooting champagne. Maybe we should boil our hot dogs in champagne. We've done that. It's a bad idea. <laughs> Another hot dog circle around that. And then probably having like ridiculous topping stations because the follies were so over the top and opulent. It would be like, okay, I'm going to put caviar on my hot dogs, expensive caviar. I'm gonna put gold leaf on my hot dogs. Um, And I couldn't think of like how to make the buns more ridiculous, but we would have to do something there too. It would be a production, right? You You would walk in, it would be, you know, like one of those chocolate type fountains, probably not with chocolate. I don't know what that would be, but just like something opulent and ridiculous that you would see at some crazy expensive breakfast bar. My only suggestion is we'd use the gold leaf for the hot dog buns. So you're eating the hot dog on a gold hot dog bun. I love it. It's good for digestion, right? <laughs> good for, yeah. How much truffle, how many truffles are in it? Just everything? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Just shave truffle on top of everything. It doesn't matter if it doesn't taste good or go with it. Have you ever had real truffles? Because I've never had a real truffle. Yes. I was, I was in Italy a few months ago. Basically, truffles grow on the side of the road there. The ones we get back in the U.S. are the ones that are visually perfect. So they like basically throw a lot of truffles away or just don't use them. They're also saying a lot of the truffle in quote truffle oil that we get in the U S is actually not real truffle. It's some kind of fake product, which is probably why if you've ever had truffles or truffle oil and don't like it, it's probably because it's fake. And that's what the Italians say. Yeah. That's what I was getting at because I hate truffle oil. Like I don't want it anywhere near any of my food. It tastes like garbage. We get the fake stuff here. My girlfriend went truffle hunting when she was over there, and I was kind of like, ah, I don't know if I feel like that. I feel like I don't like truffles that much. But you found truffles. Yeah, they found truffles. Apparently, it's very common. It's very easy. They grow in the same place all the time, uh, so they know where they are. They actually have dogs that can help sniff them out, but they don't even need to because basically they continue to grow in the same places every time. So I was driving down the roads in the Italian countryside, and there are people on the median or just on the side of the road. They're just picking truffles. Pretty easy uh, to come across over there. I learned a lot. Uh, Maybe one day I'll have a truffle. (laughs) We should try the real stuff. Yeah, I agree. So we're going to dive into actors. And the first one we're going to talk about is William Powell. And he plays Ziegfeld. So he's the main character of the story. Powell was nominated for three Academy Awards for his acting career. But again, not for this film. Uh, You might recognize him for movies like The Thin Man. And that has seven different movies. The thing to know about him is that... He starred in uh, the movie called Reckless with Jean Harlow, who, again, was a very famous actress. They ended up becoming romantically linked. We're mentioning this because it is kind of a funny story. He ended up giving her a very handsome ring, but he did not ask her to marry him. Harlow referred to that ring as her unengagement ring. I know that if I would have given Sarah an unengagement ring, I would no longer have a girlfriend or a fiance. (laughs) It's a good story. Part of it is he was in a previous relationship that didn't really work. And I think he was, you could say, gun shy of the next wedding. Marriages don't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. Up next, we have Louise Rainier, and she played Anna Held in this movie, who was one of Ziegfeld's love interests. She actually won Best Actress for this role. Rainier was from Germany. 
In this movie, she's supposed to be playing a French person, which is why she has a weird German accent. I would not say a French accent. Dave, did you pick up on that at all? I didn't pick up on it. I just picked up on and like, what is this person doing? (laughs) It's a German woman trying to maybe do a French accent, but it doesn't really work. Anyways, Louise Rainier was considered for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, but I don't think she ever even tried out for it. I think that idea was nixed. Her nickname was the Viennese Teardrop, in part for this role. There's a scene where she's crying and, and going on, and it, that's sort of how she got her nickname. I don't. I kind of think that's a terrible nickname. <laughs> it sounds like a gang tattoo on your face, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who are you known for? I'm the attractive crying woman. Uh, that's not great. <laughs> she was the first actor to win a second Academy Award and the first to win back to back. So she won for this movie and then for The Good Earth the following year. At the time of her death, she she was almost 105 years old, 13 days shy of that. She is the longest lived Oscar recipient. That's a superlative that has not yet been exceeded. Production facts. I think the most important thing from this movie is that this was just a major influence on the glamorous success of 1930s cinematic musical numbers. There are some very long musical numbers in this film. This had a lot of influence later. I would even say uh, like an American in Paris has this really long musical number. They probably called back to this film a little bit when they were thinking about adding that to the movie. Dave, any thoughts on that? No, just go see American in Paris, which is a movie I really like. And I know it's controversial because you don't like the ending. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. (laughs) Sort of related to that too. This, uh, it held the record for the longest runtime for an American movie for quite some time. Film producers actually cut a lot of things. I think a lot of it had to do with musical numbers that for some reason they felt were really important at the time. That's how you're going to get people to sit in their seats. Like, well, just show them the follies. And then they, who cares about Ziegfeld? <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's kind of what I'm, I'm not joking. I kind of think that's what happened. <laughs> I mean, I think it's true. And I, uh, I I think that's why people went to see this movie was where the follies. And then I, just for some historical context, before we get into the recap, Ziegfeld passed away just a few years before this movie was made. Again, we talked about this, but he would have been very well known at the time. This movie definitely whitewashes some of Ziegfeld's more scandalous moments. He was more or less involved with every woman that shows up in this movie. Again, we're going to do the nicest version of it, even though it does hint at some of those things. By whitewash, like, I still even think they do a good job. (laughs) Like, they talk about it, but I'm sure there was like a lot of gritty details that we don't even know about. He's like, oh, this lady kissed me when she was drunk and my wife saw it. Yeah, I'm sure that's not exactly what happened. And I I mentioned that when we're going through the movie. (laughs) Okay, let's just get into the movie. So, Dave, are you ready to dive into the movie recap? I think you mean, am I ready to climb all those stairs? (laughs) I am. Yes, you are. All right, cool. (laughs) We're going to become stair masters. That's exactly what I was thinking. Oof, what an interesting uh, analogy or metaphor. (laughs) Good for your glutes. (laughs) We feel like no one really knows who Florence Sigfield is anymore. So we're just going to go through the the highlights of it, this movie. It's like three hours long. Honestly, you don't need to know everything that happens. So growing up, Florence Ziegfeld's father had founded a music conservatory and had hoped Ziegfeld would work there. And that's why he has this background in entertainment. He's a Nepo baby, John. The first, maybe. Maybe the first Nepo baby. <laughs> I don't I mean. No, I bet it has to be a Barrymore. The first Nepo baby has to be a Barrymore somewhere. (laughs) The first Nepo baby was like the child of a king in Europe somewhere. (laughs) Daddy, I would like to put on a play. (laughs) (laughs) I will make everyone attend and they will clap for you. So Ziegfeld's first job is a carnival barker. So there's a world's fair and he's promoting Sandow, the world's strongest man. Ziegfeld makes Sandow a sex symbol. And the show gets national recognition. Let's describe how he makes him a sex symbol because it's it's ridiculous, right? He just yeah. has him flexing, flexing the music, just like sort like of belly, belly dancers dancer. do. Yeah. yeah. Man, times were simpler back then. Did you look up pictures of the real Sandow? I did not. Describe him to me. Dude, he is ripped. He was a bodybuilder from early in life. And if you think of like a classic Greek or Roman sculpture, this is what that guy looks like, but more jacked. What he basically did is had him pose mostly nude for women who would come up and feel his muscles. 
and then get really hot and bothered. And that's how they made their money. Uh, I love how on one side of the runway was like, men, come see these attractive belly dancers doing the hoochie cooch. And on the other side, ladies, feel this jacked man. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a great date. (laughs) Honestly, you should look up Sandow if you haven't seen him before. Just an impressive specimen. And where you're looking up things from Sandow, look up the Sandow clown, which is a cryptid. It's maybe an alien. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a real weird story. I didn't look that up, but now I will. <laughs> Generally, this first scene, I I didn't mind. I thought it was kind of fun. I actually thought the actor who did Sandow did a pretty good job. I mean, he was playing a, a lunkhead. Near the end of it was where I started to sour on this film. The scene where a character introduces a young woman to Ziegfeld, and he's immediately like, I didn't like your costumes. Like, you were wearing the wrong things. You're mismatched. And I was like, this guy's such a dick negging immediately he's like the original person to do that maybe i mean again i get the whole point is they're like oh we're establishing this guy's quote power his unique thing and his unique thing is he has impeccable taste but i've saw those shows in this movie he does not (laughs) one he was dead by the time this movie came out (laughs) and and two we're not of that time i guess it's hard for us to understand what was tasteful at the time i suppose no, I don't think this guy was tasteful. And and not that I dislike that, honestly. I just think that yeah. he's just portrayed in this opening scene as a something he's probably not. He's like and just really, really rude. Would you say he's more of an opportunist than a tastemaker? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, think yeah. So I mean, that's the, the person, everything I've read about him, kind of a user, honestly. But he made it work and he made people famous. There's the push and pull of positive and negative experiences with this person. Yeah. And then then I also want to get your thoughts on just how Ziegfeld manipulated the media. Yeah, I actually thought that was really interesting. I feel like Hollywood started doing that around this time. They started understanding the power of media. This was pre-Hollywood or leading up into that, where he would make up crazy stories about some of the actors and actresses in his plays to put the spotlight on them and draw more attention so more people would come to their shows. That's just a really interesting tactic that he used to his advantage. What was your thought on that? Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. Of course, you know, I I work in the media. I was always thinking like, would this work today? Maybe for gossip bags. There's probably still versions of this happening, honestly, but maybe not as... um... One of the examples is like one of his actresses was bathing in 20 gallons of milk or 40 gallons of milk every day. I feel like we've heard things like that, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what, uh, what's her name? Taylor Swift is drinking the blood of virgins. (laughs) I heard that. I also heard she was drinking the blood of of football players. (laughs) Virgin football players, yeah. I mean, it just goes back to like create a sensation and then people will start following you and then you have a brand and then, you know they'll purchase your stuff from the brand. It's becoming more sophisticated, but it's existed everywhere. It's it's marketing for sure. Yeah, and that's if you believe that Taylor Swift is dating Kelsey. All I know is anytime I watch a football game, whether it be college football or the NFL, they talk about Taylor Swift in the game, no matter what game it is. <laughs> I'm just like, what is happening? Why am I hearing so much about Taylor Swift? <laughs> it makes the game pass faster. <laughs> <laughs> I literally know nothing about Taylor Swift. I could maybe name two songs. Definitely one, maybe not two. This is crazy to me. (laughs) Good for the NFL, really. (laughs) Probably that, yeah. I guess he's sold a ton of jerseys since then, so good for him. Okay, after this act, I wouldn't say go sideways, or he just, Ziegfeld maybe just gets a little tired of it. I mean, he bombs it. He has the strong man try to wrestle a lion who's drugged. And he has to run away because he's going to get arrested. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if that was part of his story too, right? To draw more attention. You never know. He scampers off to Europe for a while to scout new talent. And on his trip, he runs into a rival producer, Jack Billings. I would say the two of them have a competitive friendship where they're trying to outdo each other in pursuit of finding the next big thing. They're frenemies. It feels a lot, much more that Jack likes Ziegfeld more than Ziegfeld likes Jack. But they also do things that benefit each other in the long run. So like they they become partners uh, at a certain point as well. The the biggest note on Jack Billings, the actor who portrayed him in this movie was Frank Morgan. And he's best known for being the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. 
he's one of two actors that are in Wizard of Oz in this film. Who's the other one? The one of them's the Scarecrow, the guy who does the tap dancing. Oh, okay, cool. I guess we're just in that time in Hollywood, right? Yeah, and this is before Wizard of Oz came out. When I watched the tap dancing scene, I mean, we're jumping all over here. Sorry, guys. But um, I was like, oh, Wizard of Oz took this from (laughs) this movie, which is fine by me. (laughs) Tapping along here, we've got a broke Ziegfeld borrowing money from Billings on this trip. Ziegfeld decided to stop over in Monte Carlo and like blew all his money from Sandow on the casino tables of some kind. Asked to borrow money. Billings is like, all right, I'll give you some money. Just go home. Quit trying to scoop my talent. That's exactly what Ziegfeld does is he scoops the talent and he meets um, a talented singer. She's supposed to be French. This is Anna Held, who we talked about. She's a fiery personality. I would say in the movie anyway, she often acts rashly. Uh, And I think it's meant for comedic effect. Dave, what was your take on that? Yeah, I think it was meant for comedic effect, but it didn't work for me. It kind of made her seem... A little unhinged. Unhinged, a little childish. Um, uncertain of herself like she had to have Ziegfeld to achieve her goals it really I mean based on my research it 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 really you know did not describe who this woman actually was or show who this woman actually was what did you find in your research she is basically the mastermind behind all this not him oh they both played a big part don't get me wrong she was much more involved than this show pretends pretends like she doesn't seem involved in this at all but she held his hand and they worked together very closely to put the follies on that first follies just to to fill in some of those things Ziegfeld produces the show for Anna and it becomes a hit and this leads to this concept of the follies some the follies are basically large-scale musical variety shows they have lavish sets lavish costumes lavish dresses beautiful women new songs uh they're entertaining they're probably with something for everyone I think the idea for Ziegfeld is he wanted women to want to be in his shows or want to feel like they were in his shows, like with lavish costumes, a lavish lifestyle, those kind of things. You know, Dave, what's your take on what is a folly? It's a review. And so it, it really originated in Paris and Anna Held and Ziegfeld brought it over to the United States. Very lavish, opulent, like you said. That first one is the basically glorifying the American girl. But for me, it, 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 this is all marketing speak. It, Ziegfeld is essentially like a sensationalist. He's like, hey, I'm just going to have really scantily clad women, chorus girls on the stage in like interesting backgrounds. I was I was thinking where you're talking, like, what's the best way to describe him? It's like a raunchy Baz Luhrmann, maybe. <laughs> As you were saying that, I was thinking like, it's all style, no substance. Yeah, that, that'd be a good point. Anna and Ziegfeld's relationship grows from there. They don't get married. I think the movie sort of says they do. They had a common law arrangement. After some time, Ziegfeld starts developing for someone other than Anna. In the movie, they make it seem like she gets jealous of this. There's actually a moment where she comes into a dressing room and there's the star of Ziegfeld's new production, who's very drunk. She has kissed Ziegfeld and that's when Anna catches them at, sort of in that moment and they split after that. Yeah. So so let's dig into that about the real life history behind this. The character in the movie, her name's Audrey, and she's an amalgamation of many different uh, women in Ziegfeld's life. I think the most prominent one would be Lillian Lorraine. And this is a woman who was be later described as like the love of Ziegfeld's life and that she kind of always had his, his mind in some way. Uh, they had a very complicated romantic and professional relationship. What I understand is he had an affair with her. It was not like she kissed him. It's in the real life. It was the other way around, which led to, you know, essentially their the deterioration of their their relationship. For one thing, Lillian Lorraine was 17 when Ziegfeld found her. So very young. It kind of needs to be said here. He's a creep. He's a total creeper. He's a bit of a creep. They came over and Anna had her own show. And then during that time period, Ziegfeld's like, well, I want to put another show on, make even more money because his his whole motivation is just more, more, more. It, it's replayed by the sense of stairs. Like at the very beginning, he's like, I want more stairs. But the, what that ends up being is that he puts on the first Follies. We mentioned this previously, but the Follies were really themed around glorifying the American women. And these were very successful, but eventually everything falls apart. He just can't keep up and he starts producing- not just follies, but plays. And that's really what pushed him down. 
During that time period, uh, he met Billy Burke. She's a famous actress, uh, mass- massively successful entertainer in her own right, uh, and they ended up, ended up getting married. And through their relationship and through the years, uh, Zegfeld kind of washes up. At least that's what he thinks he is. And there's this moment in the, in the movie where he's getting a haircut and all these people are making fun of him. And he gets up and he says, I'm going to make four successful movies in a year, uh, which is insane. And he goes around and he does that. He actually does it. I wrote down two of those because I think people would recognize them. One is Showboat, which is hugely influential. And the other is Three Musketeers. I think I've seen that version. I, I probably have two. The other two I didn't actually recognize, so I didn't add them in, add them in. Any movie that takes place in the 30s, John, guess what happens? Uh there's no sound. <laughs> the stock stock market crashes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so what essentially happens is Zigfield's at the top of the world. He's leveraged all his money uh to make these four shows to prove himself that he's still got it. Uh, and he's also leveraged his shows uh to get loans that he've take, he's taken out a bunch of a stock and then like we said stock market crashes and he loses all his money essentially it's like kind of sad because it does seem like he'd finally learned his lesson to stop blowing his money on whatever his whims were he's like i need an elephant in the show i need you know i need to send this actress like the most expensive diamond bracelet i could possibly find hey he finally learned his lesson and then you know it's a little too late or the timing is very poor that also seems to be a story in Ziegfeld's life he, he's always a little bit off on his timing he misses the move to Hollywood, like a bunch of his actors, his stage actors get swiped by Hollywood studios and they're not doing you know, plays in person anymore. So he's always just like slightly behind the curve, it seems. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, he has a lot of ambition and he doesn't know how to rein that in. Uh, but anyway, the movie kind of abruptly ends. It, Ziegfeld ends up getting sick. His wife goes back to work and then he dies thinking of he's going to mouth another comeback. Frankly, John, it's kind of a an anticlimactic ending to me. I, I wasn't prepared for it to end as fast as it did. He lost his money, movie over. What's funny about that is it's a three-hour movie and you're like, man, I could have used a little more at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, the scene itself, it, it's an overlay of his face on stairs talking about, you know, he wants more stairs, which is the metaphor of he wants to do more. He wants to go bigger. He wants to go higher. Love it. It was great from a filmmaking standpoint, but from a story standpoint, it's just flat. (laughs) That's one thing we didn't get into is like, I feel like there's not a lot of story development in this movie. They have these scenes where they show the follies, which again, are these like musical numbers. And that's maybe more than a quarter of the film are these musical numbers. And they don't add anything to the story. Like they're not story driven. It's literally like, uh, here's a little song that happened in a folly. Like we're going to show you an elaborate set piece. They're, they're there to show his his brilliance, essentially. It's like, look at all these things he came up with. I feel like most people probably didn't get to New York to see the Follies. So this mm-hmm. is a way for the Follies to come to you. You could go see it in your hometown. So maybe people wanted that. For me, I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> I watched this movie maybe four times in preparation for this because we started this way back in March. <laughs> I would, fa- I started just fast forwarding through those moments. Like they don't add anything to the story. And that's probably my biggest critique is there's not a lot of plot development. Like we could have really cut this down into an hour and a half probably. Yeah. And and that's sort of what made the recap of this podcast difficult because it's just, he's not successful. He's successful, has a bunch of relationships, unsuccessful dies. like it's really simple (laughs) his death is kind of interesting too so in real life what happened is his wife billy burke inherited his debt i think at the time she was mostly a stage actor that forced her into acting in movies in hollywood to pay off the debts something she didn't particularly want to do she sold the rights to this movie to universal pictures pretty much immediately after his death the movie basically went into production immediately following that so i think he died in like 32 And by 34, this movie was already in production. But that's why this movie happened more than anything was that his wife needed to pay off his massive debts. Good for her for making it happen. I don't know how I would feel if I was her and this movie came out because it's like even like the best possible version they're showing, he still is a cad. (laughs) Or she doesn't care. Maybe she didn't care. (laughs) You know? 
I think he was like loving in many ways, but loving of everything. And <laughs> he took everything to the excess and he took everything, you know, like any woman who threw himself at him and vice versa. He was always living in the moment and not always thinking about the future, it seemed. So, John, let's actually jump into like the movie discussion here and actually talk about it. The biggest question I had is like, is this actually a biopic? It's interesting that you asked that question. I think the answer is yes. But the way this movie was described is the writer of the movie had proposed this being a biographical film in the form of, and I quote, a film musical entertainment. I think they tried to mash up two genres here of musical and biography kind of got what we got as a result it was something new and it's not perfect yeah i i don't actually think it's a good biopic because <laughs> like, it, it doesn't really get into the character or even tell the real story of what happened you mentioned this earlier but it does feel like a movie designed to sell the follies the follies yeah exactly it's like oh here are the follies uh we're gonna we're just gonna keep pushing them pushing this brand because it's popular uh and this other guy we gotta make him look good because he's the head of the brand, the name, the face recognition. Like, how do you feel he's portrayed at the end? Like, I feel like we get the idea that he tries hard. He's a successful failure in some weird way. I know that's like an oxymoron, but his things that he does are very successful, but he doesn't manage his success. Like, he loses all his money every single time. He spends too much on every production. As an analogy, I feel like this is Donald Trump, right? Just declaring bankruptcy on failed things and like he does a lot somehow people know his name but he's not really successful he's just branded himself in a way that you're aware of what he's done yeah i had that same thought i kind of think the ending is actually a downer it shows him as like you have no money you're sick your partner friend came in and lied to you about about having money to put on a new play you're just thinking about going keep going and doing more and more and more I mean, he has a wife and kids that he's not seeing <laughs> like it. Yeah, that ending again, it looks great, uh, but didn't sit well with me and paints him as a, I think, an unsympathetic character. The question I have is like, is that the time period uh, was that seen as something that's amazing? Like he's going to keep pushing no matter what, like is, is ambition a, a great positive attribute? I don't know. Like, I don't know how history favored him at the time either. I think, again, everyone would have known about what he had done with his follies in Hollywood and things like that. But it was, he looked at as a sympathetic character who could have done so much more had he not died of illness. Is that what they were trying to get at? He had more hits that he wanted to make. I don't know. Yeah, it's ambiguous. And I guess that's why we're talking about it. But I did want to maybe switch to one, another topic. And I think this is, we're dancing around this. Um, It's the folly themselves, right? So this Mm. movie built it up, built it up, built it up. And I had never seen any of them before I watched this movie. What were your thoughts the first time you saw the first Folly, the first musical act? Thought that the set pieces were amazing. So they have really complex camera shots, especially at the time. And these like gigantic lavish sets. Dave talked about the stairs. So they have this column that sort of rotates around. So I guess the camera is fixed, but moving upwards as the column spins. And there's stairs on this column. And every stair has like a different person singing or doing something. And it's huge. It's like 200 feet high. And that is like so impressive, I would say. Like the sets, especially for the time, like the complexity of building those sets. However, these scenes are like 25 minutes long. (laughs) And I'm just like, one, the music quality isn't that great because it was recorded in the 1930s. Trying to focus on what was being said or the songs themselves. Like they didn't resonate with me. I couldn't hear them very well. The lyrics weren't great either. Yeah, that was my reaction. What about you? I have I have a similar reaction. The filming is really good. It looks really good. I guess I think all the follies like themselves look really good. But that first one, i I was putting trying to put myself into the mind of an audience member who's not seeing the movie, but seeing the follies for the first time. If I came to this show. And I saw just what essentially is a diorama spinning in a circle. I think I would be really annoyed. But then I had to take a step back and I was like, well, people aren't going to see this type of stuff on a regular basis. Not like us, right? So this is probably really cool. In terms of set design, again, gorgeous. 
it's really interesting. But this first one, I, I don't really think it was for me. I really, I like the second one simply better. So, so what about the first one didn't appeal to you? And like, what about the second one that, that did? Yeah, so this is a long-running uh, discussion on this podcast. So the first movie lacked movement. Uh, there were some some movement people, but generally people were still or like very slight motions. Now the second one uh, had lot had a lot more motion, i.e., dance. Uh, there was more people doing different things, and I really like dance, so that attracted me. There was the women waking up in the bed scene, the scarecrow dancing scene, uh, the dog. The dog dancing scene was very odd. <laughs> I think uh, just just to like set the scene up for our listeners at home who probably will never watch this movie. The first scene is a column rotating in stairs. So I feel like they didn't have people dancing because it would have been dangerous. But the second one has these moving set pieces where like the stage moves out into the crowd. So like th- there are some differences. Like one is this like amazing camera shot. And the other one is like a well choreographed dance number with moving set pieces. Honestly, I, when I'm watching this movie, I started getting to the point where I was like, I just want to watch the follies. Like, I don't, I don't care about this story. It annoys me. Uh, I'll just watch the musical numbers and call it a day. I think I'd be bored by the musical numbers because I was listening to what they were saying and they weren't that interesting. The, the content of the songs. What was your take on, on that? I mean, a bunch of love songs slash sad love songs. <laughs> that's because that's, that's, that's basically every one of them. But the dancing, I really like. This is the singing for the time period. I, I don't particularly like it. So I don't have much to say about it. I'm, I'm sure some people really love it, but it's not for me. I, there was just a couple of scenes that, I, that only got me. So there was one with, uh, was it Franny, the, the comedian slash uh, singer? Yes, she was a vaudeville act that, that Ziegfeld moved over to Broadway, I guess. Yeah, and that was the actual actress, the real actress. She came to the scene and she's like, oh, I'm going to be a real star. And he's like, no, you need to wear a, a ugly shawl. That scene got me because I could feel how how sad this woman was. She's like, I'm going to make it big, but she's not. She's not going to be a. a- I, I was trying to decide if he was doing that as like an acting coach to set her in a certain mindset to be like, no, you're not the star you think you are, because that's where he needs her to be when she's singing this song about being sad. And lonely. As he walks away, he doesn't say it to her, but he's like, she's going to be a star. Couldn't decide if that was a tactic he was using to get a, a certain emotion from her or if it was him being a jerk. I know. I always lean on him being a jerk. Okay. Okay. Like always. He, he'll do anything to get the performance right, and that makes him a jerk. You you have this written here, so I want I want to like talk about this too. Uh, the comedy in this movie. Yeah, there's some kind of screwball moments. You see that with... Uh, what was the name of the vaudevillian? Franny. She has a lot of like comedic moments where she she has little asides. I think there's some of that in the movie generally. Like there's the screwball, quick comment type humor in here. And you do have to kind of be paying attention to pick up on it. I think it's okay. Um, what's your take on it? Like, do you did you find it funny? I didn't. No, it didn't. It yeah. didn't hit for me. Uh, it's just a different time period. I, I'm not into the like mugging at the camera so you're telling me the the office isn't a show for you? I have not watched The Office. I don't know about Gerald and Pam. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to add? I don't, I don't really have anything else to add. I think I, just to mention, like one of the things I thought was really odd was that every woman in the movie was really hot for Ziegfeld. Even like the really young woman whose storyline just disappeared. <laughs> like, yeah, I was trying to figure out if if something happened in in their lives together. And I didn't see anything on the internet that suggested that they like got together. The story that Dave and I are alluding to is at the beginning of the film, Sigfield's in his dad's music conservatory. And there's a young girl who's probably like 10 years old. She has a crush on Sigfield. They, I would say flirt innocently at that time, but then she shows up as an adult, like 10 or 15 years later. And she like plants a kiss on his, on his lips. It's like, she's suggestive. I would say. And it just seemed really weird. It was very weird, unless it's in the movie to show that he can control himself. <laughs> I don't know. It was a weird, it's very odd. I don't, I don't understand it at all. Dave, why do you think this movie won Best Production? Generally, this is considered one of the worst Best Picture winners. When I was doing the research about it, everyone was like, well, this movie won just because of, of how popular it was and because of the sets. 
and the production work. And I do have to agree, the sets and the production work are really, really good, and it made a crap ton of money. So there's not a strong like narrative why this film won. It just was popular. The studio was very strong at that time. Good, good production work. Uh, and then this is a caveat for sorry, caveat for like basically all entertainment movies. Hollywood loves entertainers, so they will award entertainers. We talked about this earlier. I, I agree. The sets were great. Some of the camera work for the time, I think, was complicated and done really well. Just to maybe add to what you're saying, the popularity of the movie was because people wanted to see the Follies, I think, so they could go see it in their hometown. We touched on this also. I think there were a lot of cameos or mentions of famous people that Zigfield met or made famous himself. So I think that also had some box office draw as well as there's a lot going on. You probably had a, a famous or favorite actor slash actress that you may have known that was part of Zigfield's life. And you may have gone to see that in the movie. John, John, have you ever gone to a movie to see a cameo? Um, Probably not, but it's nice when it happens. <laughs> the biggest cameo BS moment in a film that's probably happened in the last 15 years is Iron Man in The Hulk, who was in it for 30 seconds. And then the commercials were advertising like he's in it. Oh, I don't remember the commercials. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I remember people getting really angry because they were like, he's not in the film at all. He, he makes a, a cameo at the end of the film, like in the after credits, basically. They were building up a cinematic universe, Dave. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I've never gone to a movie just to see like a cameo of someone. You know, I mean, I think there's some movies that have some great cameos. I like it maybe better as a surprise even. So I don't know. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe that isn't a box office draw. We've done this throughout, but let's let's hammer in our critiques. Okay. So everyone understands fully where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think they already do. Yeah. So I, I would say, so the character of Anna Held, who is played by Louise Rainer, who won a Oscar for her performance here, I would say is not a good performance. I would say it even is borderline bad. I am kind of surprised that she won Best Actress this year. I totally agree because I I didn't know she won Best Actress until I did my research, and I was like, like what? This is this is a, not a good performance. Like I I really dislike this this thing. Uh, so really shocking. Just along those lines, there aren't any great performances in the movie. The acting is not why you would see the movie. I also as a critique, I I time this. There's the two and a half musical numbers in the movie, and that's forty minutes of the film. Technically marvelous, but they aren't story elements and they don't move this, the movie along in any way. I would cut that. It's unnecessarily long. It's so long. Finally, I just feel like Zigfield was a man of his time and we just don't know him anymore. He's not important enough for us to care. Unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, that happens when we, we almost have 100 years of film history we're going through. <laughs> it's, it's true. Like we've he's he's been he's a man lost to time. I don't know what his legacy is. It could be like these elaborate musical numbers. Maybe that's what he provided. Dave, critiques on your end? I think this film is problematic. It essentially glorifies someone who should not be glorified. He's a scam artist with Cooper vibes. Uh, and the bit, the movie bends over backwards and make him seem charming. I think it uh, depicts women as materialistic. And this is particularly about Anna and Audrey. They especially don't treat the actual Anna held with any respect. She is... Uh, significantly more talented than this film shows. And then the final one is it's just very, very long. It's very long. The I, I'm the opposite of you, though. I, I would just watch the musical numbers. I, I don't want to watch the film itself, the, the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would, you know, we'll get into this in a minute, but I, I can't recommend this film. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's do that. Just one note on your how it glorifies a man. Again, getting back to the why this movie was created is because he left his wife indebted and she's just like, we got to make a movie about this. Strike while the iron's hot. So they did. So I feel like that's why this movie largely came about was someone had a bill they needed to pay and were like, this is a way I can make money. That is the genesis of the film. It wasn't made with the intent of it being a piece of art or like a cinematic masterpiece. It was like, how can we make money? We're going to put the follies in it. People are going to come see it. You know, again, we're going to sell this. Yeah, that's my take. That's my take. On yeah. So let's so. let's actually just jump to that. Let's let's say winner or wiener. I, I'm assuming you know where you're going. 
I think there's a little value in the movie if if you're like a film historian and have an interest in old Hollywood. But generally, I cannot recommend this movie to most people. I would say it's a wiener. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, double wieners. <laughs> We've crossed the wieners stream. Wieners crossed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would caveat this. I I think the care, like the actual people this movie talks about, are very interesting. And there are some books out there that I I was trying to get my hands on to do some research, particularly a biography of Anna Held. So go check that out. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's from Kentucky Press. It's a it's a university book. Definitely, there's some really interesting things in here, but. I, I, I would really, really skip this. Agreed. Dave, I forgot the, about the segment, but I see it here. And maybe you've come up with something. So do you have a porn name for this film? And, and I, let me know if you get it. Uh, okay. His Great Zigfield. I get it. You get it? His, his Great Zigfield? Are you sure you get it? We'll say it one more time just to make his sure I get it. His Great Zigfield. Uh-huh. That's great. Uh-huh. 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 Uh, yeah. And there's other one other thing. Well, one, do you have a porn name? No, I totally forgot about that. So uh, I, I wasn't prepared. I, yeah, getting his follies <laughs> off. There you go. That's one. <laughs> I like uh, that. <laughs> or, or was it? The his, jolly. Yes, his jollies off. <laughs> uh, and the, the other thing that we, we skipped over, um, questions from the internet. And then I typically ask people, what do you want us to talk about? And the only question we got back was, what are we going to cover showgirls? <laughs> I think you and I had talked about that before. There's a documentary about how showgirls is actually a good movie. <laughs> and I forget what it's called. And I feel like we should watch that and then watch showgirls to see if, <laughs> like, if we can agree that this documentary is right. I mean, I'm happy to do that. You, you want to watch showgirls? I'll do it. <laughs> at some yeah. point, at some point, I feel like we have some things to get through. I started Gone with the Wind already. I have notes on some of that. I feel like we should do that next. We probably have more to talk about there, but also very long. It's very long. It's very long. I've seen it. Um, I remember liking it when I was younger. It's going to be real interesting to see it after I've grown up and now I'm an adult. (laughs) Uh, I've watched it twice now, I think. And um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I know exactly where you're going at, um, yeah. but just for the audience, we are doing Gone with the Wind next. 1939, one of the best years in cinema ever. We'll definitely talk about that. As a recap, I am terrified to do this movie, but I have the book. I have the movie already, and we're going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> yeah, we have to at some point, I think. And it's a good little project for us. Uh, maybe get into something a little more interesting with a little more meat to it. Yeah. So, so John, uh, are you happy to be back? I feel out of practice. Like, do you feel out of practice? Just like being prepared to speak for an hour and a half? A, a little bit, a little bit. I, I have still been doing podcasts over at Movie Films and Flicks, but they are much different animals than the, the, these podcasts. Uh, yeah. That one's a much more freewheeling show, and I can, you know, change topics in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> I feel like we were both kind of dreading this movie, which is why it took us six plus months to to get to the recording of this. I mean, a lot has happened in our lives since then too, but I feel like that only added to it is like, you weren't excited about this and I wasn't excited about it. That makes it hard to kind of sit down and do work around it. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, anything else for our sometimes listeners? Yeah. Uh, I have a couple things coming up. I want everyone to check out. Uh, so again, I mentioned that I'm on movie films and flicks on a semi regular basis. So I just had a episode come out, uh, called Barbenheimer, and it's when Mark and I tried to find out, will it Barbenheimer? So we went through movies and found two movies that opened up in the same weekend, uh, mashed them together and asked each other, would we go see these movies? It's really odd, but a lot of fun. So is the idea that two movies came out in one weekend and you would go see them back to back? Yes, thing? yes. Gotcha. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up so I can tell you um, what I picked. And I'm going to ask you, would I go see these back to back? I can tell you, I would tell you no already because, well, maybe that's not true. When Dave, when you and I were in the dorms at Ohio State and there was no air conditioning, we would probably go see two to three movies in a day, just sneaking into the next one, mostly because it was so damn hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if I would do that anymore. Yeah, I'm not going to go through all of them, John. Give me your best ones. Best ones. Okay, okay. The year is 1920. So, nope, that's not right. The year, <laughs> the the year is 1920. 1920. <laughs> the Great War has just ended. The year is 1996. 
<laughs> I have to restart. It is 1996, December 20th. Scream okay. and Beavis and Butthead do America come out in the same weekend. <laughs> Would you watch them back to back? Scream, Scream, Butthead? Is what scream, call scream, Butthead. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead do America and Scream. <laughs> uh, it's such a difference in the movies. I suppose you could do those back to back. It'd be a long day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to do one more. The year is 2007. It's November 21st. No Country for Old Men releases, and so does The Mist. Will you watch them back to back? I don't think I ever saw The Mist. Oh. <laughs> I would say no, because I feel like No Country for Old Men is kind of a long movie, right? A little bit. It's not not super long, but yeah, it's longer than normal. Okay. And how long is The Mist? Like 90 minutes, maybe? In a little over 90 minutes. Okay. I mean, like, I feel like physically it's doable. Uh, yeah. I would probably not do that. So physically, physically, it is very doable, John. Mentally, mentally, absolutely not. The mist is will destroy you. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. And no country is already a bit of a downer. So like, yeah, I don't want to go to uh, two movies back to back and then go home and cry. <laughs> so yeah, so like, give us your take. So you wouldn't do that for the mist. Uh, no country for old men. So scream butthead. 100% no, I would do that. 100% because they're both comedic. You know, scream does have a lot of that. Like, it's a nice like. Would you say slasher parody? It's a meta movie, but yeah, yeah. I did not see the latest Scream movie, Scream. Not seven? as good as the other six, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. It's on the list. I feel like they're just killing off the old Scream characters at this point. They're just like, we're done with them. Oh, well, they're trying. Around. They're trying. Dave, speaking of horror movies, what was your favorite of your Friday the 13th rewatch? Friday, Friday the 13th part three. Uh, it was done in 3D, and though you can't watch it in 3D, so it's kind of odd. <laughs> is it? What does that mean? How do you watch it then? Like, uh, so they don't, it's just not in 3D, but okay. it's still filmed in 3D. So there's like moments where things, things shoot at the camera. Uh, <laughs> oh, but it's just regular oh, okay. film. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the one he gets his hockey mask for the first time. I really, really like that one. I, I fully recognize it is not the best in the series. That would probably go to the first film and maybe the second, but it's, it's my favorite. And the end of that movie has a banging strange soundtrack, like does not fit anything anywhere. <laughs> so is it like you're suddenly listening to um, like Blade Runner? No, no. It, you're, you're listening to like Ghostbusters type music, but no lyrics. And it's like super jaunty. And I was like, what, did, what is this? I kind of love it. It's so weird. The something strange kind of song. <laughs> it's not that song, but it's in that style. Just no lyrics. It's like, so it's upbeat, right? Uh-huh. It's very, very odd. If you are going to go watch these movies, if you haven't already, generally, I think like there's two camps of Friday the 13th. There's pre-zombie Jason and post-zombie zombie Jason. I would be fine suggesting all the way up to the first zombie Jason movie. And then once it gets past that, like Jason X, Jason goes to hell one with a the telekinesis. They're campy. And don't get me wrong. If you love them, you love them. But like my, I'm really into like the initial ones without him being a zombie person. Gotcha. The undead. So in mortal Kombat, there's a Jason character. And once you beat him, he actually comes back to life with a quarter of his health. <laughs> That's great. There you go. Dave, how can our listeners find us on the internet? Well, you can send a wire just like Zegfeld, um, but we're on all the internets. Yeah, you're going to send it collect. Yeah, send it collect. Uh, we're on all the internets at Award Wieners, but personally, I'm on all the internets at It's Me, David Cross. Um, I'm hanging out on Blue Sky much more than I do on Twitter these days. Really sad Twitter has just been. Just it's destroyed. called X, Dave. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not calling it X, right? I'm, I'm not doing that. And anyway, you know what's going to happen? The bankers are going to take that platform back over, turn it back to Twitter, and it's going to be called Twitter again because X is a dumb name. I'm also okay with it just disappearing. Yeah, I mean, I used to hate it, but I've made a, a lot of um, writing friends and basically found a writing group through it. So I have a little. That's the joy and pain of social media is like there's a lot of like nice social things that can happen on there. We have talked to some like interesting people on the Internet through the Instagram feed that we have for the podcast. I feel like I've met people online that I'm friends with 
through social activities, either in video games or whatever it might be, which is awesome. But then there's also like everything that comes with it. And I can't really decide if it's for the better of society or not. Like, are the trade-offs worth it? I mean, at this moment, I, I can't. It, the, the amount of um, negativity on Twitter is is really disgusting. And it, it just doesn't feel like it did in 2016 when it was like peak Twitter. I can't do it. I've been trying to block people, make lists, really curate who I follow, trying to make it a better experience, but it's still not working. Like the, the algorithm sucks. You can blame Elon Musk for firing everybody that knew how to program those algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. So where they can, where can they find you? I kind of have just given up on the social media for the most part. It's been, well, there's some aspects of it I really don't like, but I just found it to be a real time suck. I was maybe spending too much. It wasn't productive time. So I've tried to find ways to be better about that. Yeah, as much as that is. Send me an email. (laughs) John at awardwieners.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. All right, cool. Well, this was fun. I'm going to climb those stairs now. We'll see everyone for Gone with the Wind. Talk to you soon. A pretty girl is like a melody that haunts you night and day Just like the strain of a haunting refrain She'll start upon a marathon and whirl around your brain You can't escape her She's in your memory By morning, night and noon She will leave you Come back again A pretty girl is just like a pretty tune